at some point in your life, I reckon that most of you in the room in your working career have had to endure what is called an annual appraisal. Haven't you? Some of you have had to do that. Lots of you know exactly what that's like. If it's anything like the annual appraisals I've had in my life, first of all, you've got the paperwork to do, don't you? Sometimes you'll be given a questionnaire oh, for an annual appraisal. Questions like, uh, over the last six months, has there been any part of your job that you've been struggling with? Any people you've fallen out with? Any colleagues that you hate? So you've got the, the paperwork to fill out. Then what happens? For me in the past... Then comes the interview. You've got to, oh, shivering even thinking about it. You've got to sit down with a person from HR and you've got to answer questions about the work and you've got to reflect on, oh yeah, how have you performed over the past year? You know, I'm sure, that an appraisal, self-assessment like that, it can be pretty hard going. Well, I've got some bad news for you as we start out this evening. Uh, Because in the loosest possible sense, that's the sort of thing you and I are faced with when we turn to Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Maybe already you see mean. Do you remember what we said last time? That these are letters that Jesus Christ is writing to churches in Asia, first century, to encourage them. Do you remember what else we said last week? We said that because there are seven of these letters, the number of totality, the number of completion in Scripture, these are not just letters to the churches of Asia, are they? Who's Christ writing to? He's writing to the universal church. He's writing to all congregations. Do you see what that means? It means that as Christ analyzes these congregations in Asia, do you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to reflect. We're supposed to analyze ourselves in this place right now. As Christ assesses the churches in Pergamum, Thyatira, Ephesus, we're to stop, we're to assess. Hang on, can what be said of them, can that be said of us? You see? So there is, as we go into the sermon series, Revelation 2, 3, there is a work of assessment, appraisal to be done. But then, let's be more specific, shall we? What of this particular letter that we are concerned with this evening? Well, you've got your Bibles open, don't you? What do you see? If you look down, straight away, don't you notice that this is a letter written to a place called... Do you see? The boys and girls see it? Tonight, letter to Ephesus. What do we know about Ephesus? We know that it was the leading city in the whole of Asia at this point here. Okay, so you can imagine what it's like, can you? It's a really busy city. It's a bustling place, huge harbor Ephesus had, and bustling commerce, that sort of idea. But more so, it was themed for the immorality that flowed into Ephesus from the temple it's famous temple, the temple of Artemis. So do you see the idea? Are you with me? Does it sound a little bit familiar? This immoral city, bustling city, city of Ephesus. But then what else do we know, friends? It's not all bad news. We know that in addition uh, to this awful, immoral temple, Ephesus had a well-established church. And I want you to appreciate that, that... At this point here, the point of writing, there had been 
a gospel witness in Ephesus for now on, I think it was about 40 years. A really quite well-established church. So do you see this? This this balance, this immoral city, this well-established church. Well, maybe if you're already entering into things, you feel the tension and you wonder, what is Christ Jesus going to say to a congregation like this? And more to the point, what is that going to mean for us in this room at London City Presbyterian Church? So, you do have your Bible. Everyone's got the Bible. Boys and girls are ready. You've got, you've got your Bibles. You, you know what we're going to do. Right, I'm going to throw out the plan this evening. Don't always do this, but we'll do it tonight. I'll set the agenda for what's going to happen. Okay, so if you're taking notes, get them. First thing we see here is Christ's assessment of the church. So we're going to look at that, how he assesses, critiques the church, Christ's assessment of the church. Then the second thing we'll consider is Christ's appeal to the church. And then the third thing, provided we've got time this evening, is we'll consider Christ's assurance for the church. So you're going to have to remember those, right? Christ's assessment of the church, Christ's appeal to the church, and Christ's assurance for the church. That's where we're going to go, God willing, this evening. So, first, Christ's assessment of the church. And um, if you were here for the first sermon in the series, then I think the start of this letter is going to sound really familiar to you. Does it not sound familiar? Christ writes to the church, the Christians in Ephesus. He emphasizes both his, his, do you see it? He emphasizes his sovereignty, that he is the one who holds the churches in his hand. He emphasizes sovereignty. Do you notice what else he does? He emphasizes his knowledge as well. He is the one. Christ is the one who walks amongst the lampstands. He knows what is going on in his churches and in his congregations. He walks in amongst them. That's a thought for us, is it not? Now, what question do we ask at this point? If Christ Jesus is walking amongst his churches and knows his churches, what does he know about Ephesus? These Christians here. Well, I think there are two sides to our Lord's critique and his, there's a positive side of this and there's a negative side. And I am going to just flagrantly plagiarize tonight. I am, not in a terrible way, but I am going to steal just the headings that, that one of the commentators had here. Because he said there's a positive and a negative side, but he was a bit more clever than I. So he said there is from Christ here a commendation and a condemnation in front of us. And I'm a man and I love that. A commending and a condemnation that you have in your hands. So what's the positive side? What does Christ praise about this church? Well, look at verse 2. You can see the positive things that Jesus says. Do you notice what he does? Our Lord throws out, he builds up an abundance of words for their Christian service. Do you see the words? Like Christ is talking of their work. Do you see that? And their toil. He talks about these Christians endurance. So you see the idea. It's really quite a simple idea, is it not? Christ Jesus here is praising the fact that though they've been around for many years, many decades, though these Christians are facing such pressure from immorality weighing down from all sides, what are they doing? They're serving Jesus. 
Like they're serving. They're serving. They're working for the glory and honor of Christ Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it lovely? But there's more. Because surely you noticed, even if you followed the reading a moment ago, even superficially, you must have noticed that there were threats to the gospel in this congregation in Ephesus. Did you notice that? The threats to the gospel they face? Because you see in verse 2, there is mention of men. That's horrible. They're claiming to be apostles. So it's the idea, judging from uh, 1 Timothy It's the idea that in this congregation in Ephesus, you had men who were false teachers going about in that congregation, and they were claiming apostolic authority. Isn't that awful? So you had these guys, but that's not all, because look at verse 6. Do you see verse 6? You've got mention of Nicolaitans, and we're going to come back to this, believe it or not, in a couple of weeks' time, the Nicolaitans, but right now you need to know this. The Nicolaitans were men who were pushing these Ephesian believers towards compromise, like pushing them towards immorality. So is everyone with me? At this point, we see that there's real, real threat to the goal in Ephesus. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ say about it? Do you notice in verse 2? He praises the Ephesians for rejecting these men and these threats. And don't you love... The language that he uses, there's so much talk about intolerance, isn't there, in the church and outside the church. Look how intolerant Jesus is. He praises the fact that these Ephesians hate the work of the Nicolaitans. And if that is not intolerant enough, look what he says. He praises them for not even being able to bear the false teachers. Do you, do you begin to get a sense of this congregation or not? Do you? I mean, think about the positive elements. They are, they are serving Jesus and they are also faithful to the gospel and faithful to doctrine. Let me turn this over to you tonight. Okay, listen. What do you think of the church thus far? Doesn't that sound great? Like if you're from London City Presbyterian Church and you moved to a different part of the world, friend, don't you want to find this? Like, don't you want to find a church where you go in and the brothers and sisters are all serving Jesus? Isn't that lovely? Imagine finding a church as well where there's real doctrinal fidelity and loyalty. Doesn't it at the moment? Doesn't it sound great, this church in Ephesus? I love this thus far. But you've got to remember what I plagiarized. Do you remember it? There's a commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is also here. There is condemnation and it is about a solemn a verse as you can ever imagine look at verse 4 even the first part of it I mean you think at this point remember Christ has ascended to glory and he's right into a church Doesn't it feel a little bit real to us? Look at the first part of it in verse 4. But I have this against you. Don't you just begin to shake a little bit to think that Christ in glory looking, walking amongst the the lampstands. I have this against you. Now, what does he have against these people? Do you see? You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, there are... What does that mean? There are a couple of different 
opinions, almost as always. And there are a couple of different opinions about what that means. Some people think this, that this idea here is that the Ephesians have abandoned their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you think like that. Maybe you think that's what this is. You know, can you imagine the idea that this is the second generation of believers in Ephesus by now as well, isn't it? So it's the idea that, that love they have for each other has grown a little bit stale and it's grown a little bit cold, right? So, and do you know what? You know, that might be an element of this, I think. But I don't think so. I think given the fact that it is a loss of love that they had at first, that this is not about brotherly love and sisterly love. What is it? This is Christ criticizing their lack of love for him, isn't it? Their abandonment of the love and zeal and devotion that they have for God, their savior and their king. And now I'm I'm saying to you, do you not get a much more balanced and rounded view of the Ephesian church? I ask you, what do you see if you look into the first century Ephesus congregation tonight? What do you see? Oh, it should shake it. Because you see a people who know well and defend well the paths of salvation. But you see a people who have lost sight of the Savior who stands in the center of it all. Isn't that Ephesus? They're serving well. They're working well. They're defending the gospel. In fact, they love doctrine. These people, they cherish doctrine. They love doctrine. But they have fallen out of love with the Christ who has forgiven them for their sin. Now, we have to apply this this evening. And we could be most ungenerous, if you allow that, this evening. Couldn't we, couldn't we point the finger in other places tonight? I mean, doesn't this sound, doesn't it sound like so many reformed churches that we've been a part of throughout our lives, doesn't it? Like congregations who, who know error a hundred paces, you know, the congregations who, who love doctrine are fascinated with doctrine, but churches, churches, churches. They seem to have so little love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We could easily point the finger. But remember how I started this sermon. Self-assessment, appraisal. So I have two questions for you tonight. Here's the first one. It's a very difficult question for a minister of a church to ask. What about London City Presbyterian Church? Is what you've got here tonight a fair summary of where we are? I mean, really, are we a church that is lacking in love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that where we are? Like, we maybe pride ourselves in doctrine, do we? One of the few, do we say, Reformed churches and Presbyterian churches in London, and we have sermon series in the five points of Calvinism, don't we? And we love the five solas of the Reformation. We love, you know, pride ourselves in doctrine, but... And I I am not saying this lightly to you. Are we as a congregation lacking in zeal and love for Christ Jesus? And then I've got a second question where I'm going to bring this to your door and I, I want you to think about it. Christian friend, have you lost the love that you had at first? You know what I'm asking you there. Is it the case that you serve well in the, in the congregation that you're a part of? You serve well. Is it the case that you know doctrine inside and out? But is it the case that the love for Jesus in your heart 
is a pale imitation of what it once was. If that's the case for you tonight, 1 Corinthians 13, 2 should be ringing in your head right now. What is it? Paul says, and if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but if I have not love, what does Paul say? If I know everything, I know doctrine, I have faith, but I have not love. Paul says, I am nothing. So we see Christ's assessment of the church. I wonder, anyone remembers what the second point is? The second heading is Christ's appeal to the church. Christ's appeal to the church. Because this is not merely a divine critique or assessment of a congregation, is it? No, tonight, along with all of the other six letters, what the Lord Jesus Christ does is he provides teaching for the church. He provides instruction for the people in Ephesus and for us. So I I, I ask you this sincerely. Do you think this picture of a congregation that is lacking love, do you think that this is applicable to us? Do you think that it's applicable to you? People lacking the love that they had at first? If so, surely you you say, well, what do we do about these things? Can we act? What do we do? How do we regain a fervor and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Christ teaches us that here. And he gives us three pointers, practical pointers. Three, thankfully, three R's he gives us. For the first, look at verse five with me, please. Look at the first one, verse five. You can see it, I'm sure, straight away in verse five. We're told to recall, aren't we? What does Jesus say? He says, if this is the situation for you lacking in love, he says, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So what does that mean? Well, I was reading a very old commentator on this portion of Scripture. And this writer told a story that I think is most helpful for understanding what Christ exhorts us to hear. So I want to retell the story as briefly as I can. So it is a story about a little boy uh, who was living in a village in the United States years ago, many, 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 many moons ago. And this little boy has fallen in love with the girl that he sits beside in school first love for this little boy he is captivated by this girl that he sits beside in school okay you get the idea pretty straightforward then the story skips on a number of years the boy has grown up the boy is now moved to the city wait for it the boy has also fallen into a life of crime so he is a pickpocket this old commentator says he's a pickpocket. So what happens in the story? One day, he's on the street, this boy, and he is stealing from an unsuspecting victim. And out the corner of this boy's eye, he looks and he sees a woman. And he turns to look at the woman. And he recognizes her. And this was the girl all grown up. And 
it takes the bloke's breath away. And what happens is at that very moment, he pauses and it all comes back to him. And in fact, he remembers her. Remembers her. And he remembers, in fact, the intensity of the love that he had for her. And he stops and he remembers what he was like as a little boy. It all comes back to him. And what does he do? He falls to his knees and he is cut to the heart by the situation. Now, can you understand why this old commentator is telling that story here at this very point? Isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is prompting us to do? Do you see that if tonight we are lacking in love, losing the love that we had, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to recall past days. And I mean intentionally. And I mean actually this evening. I mean, if this is true for you tonight, that you know in your heart you have lost the love that you once had for Christ, what do you do? You stop and you remember it. You recall it. You start tonight. Start this week. You do. You think back to what that was like. The zeal you had, the devotion you had, the love you had. You remember what you used to be like at those times, but you remember most of all the object of that love. You remember, you recall the glory of your Savior. So the first thing we're told, the first R we're told to recall, but I'm going to ask you to do something now. I'm going to ask you to notice, as we continue in verse 5, the second R. So boys and girls, can you get it? Can one of the boys, have we got any girls? It's just boys. It is. So boys, you don't let me down. If you look at verse 5, what's the next R? Do you see it? You can't miss it, it's repeated. Yes, we've got it. We are told, friends, to recall, and we are told, we are exhorted by the Lord Jesus Christ, if this is true for us, to repent. And I doubt that there is anyone in this room this evening, as I look about, who does not know what this means. If we are lacking in the love that we once had, what are we to do? We are to turn. Isn't that it? We are to turn from anything and everything that could be contributing to a diminishing love for our Savior and Lord. And I want to unpack that and I want to bring it to you this evening. And I want to to ask you to assess your own life just now. Friends, are there ways you are spending your time, pastimes, and hobbies are the things that you are spending your time doing that are taking you away from time should be spending with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I extend that? Are there people in your life that you know, if you are honest with yourself, you know that these people are leading you away from the Lord Jesus Christ? Are there practices in your life? Are there habits of sin with you just now that you know, you know, are dulling, diminishing, diluting that affection, that zeal that you should have for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are these things evident in your life as you assess yourself just now? Then what do you do? You turn from them and you turn back to Christ. You recall the former things, but you also this evening, you repent. And then there is the third R. 
You maybe can see it as we continue in verse 5. Look what Christ says to us. He says, we recall former things, we repent. And then it's a wonderfully practical exhortation from Jesus. We are also to do the works that we did at first. You and I are to do the works we did at first. We are to repeat. Let me just make this very personal, just without it being a bit too cheesy. When I first became a Christian, so we're, we're, we're talking early 20s. I was in my early 20s, not 1920s. In, in my early 20s, it, it, immediately after being saved, in the, I think the day after, or a couple of days after that, I was given a present. I was given, I cannot remember who gave it to me, but I was given an Old Testament commentary on the book of Daniel. Which is a lovely thing to be given. It's a strange choice, isn't it, for someone who has just come to faith in Christ, the book of Daniel. But I was given this Old Testament commentary on Daniel. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating for effect. That book changed my life. Like, at the end of every day at work, I would almost rush home to study that book. Or to study Daniel through that book. And I would do it, and again, not for effect, but I would do it with tears in my eyes, you know, like genuinely amazed at what the book of Daniel was telling me about my God, about the power of God and about the providence of of God. And I was just pushed by this book, pushed to study every day, come home from work. I couldn't wait to get home from work. To pray and to study this book, to study the Bible. It was all new. I was so excited by this stuff. Now, why, why tell you that? Why tell, is that not what the Lord Christ is exhorting you and me to do? Like, you understand what I'm saying to you. It is utterly insufficient for us to recall former things. Jesus Christ is not just telling you to remember what it was like when you were enthused for, what is he telling you to do? He's telling you to go back there, bro. To remember times of real devotion and excitement for Jesus. To go back and do those things. So do you remember? Do you remember the times of real passionate prayer? I hope you do. Times where you're studying scripture and so enthused to hear of your salvation. Do you remember the prayer meetings you would sometimes go to? And oh, the spirit of prayer that was there. Don't you see, that's what we are to do. To rekindle this love for Christ Jesus. And I do ask you, what do you think of this? Like, I wonder if you're sitting here tonight just yawning and it's hot and you're tired. And maybe you're thinking just now, this is fine, but it's kind of take it or leave it teaching. You know, this isn't that significant. This is not that important. Are you thinking like that? Then you should read the end of verse 5 and you should quiver before God. Look what Christ says. He says to this church in Ephesus, now remember... Listen, there is no church in Ephesus today. It's a ruin. There's nothing there. And look what Christ says. He says, unless they repent, Christ says he will come to them and remove the lamp from its stand. And there is no church in Ephesus there. Do you see the message, friends? Should we ignore this call from Christ? For renewed devotion and love 
I hate to say this phrase, but it may be that Christ comes to us and he removes the light of the gospel from London City Presbyterian Church. So we see Christ's assessment of the church and we see Christ's appeal, but very briefly and thirdly, Christ's assurance for the church, Christ's assurance for the church. Here, let me do what I never do and let me share with you a joke that uh, is a terrible joke that I uh, read this week, that I heard this week. Uh, the comedian was speaking about how um, reserved the British are, which I'm not sure that I agree with. <laughs> but he was speaking about how reserved British people are and uh, he was saying how difficult it is uh, to know if a British person is angry with you or not. And I was saying it's almost impossible to know if a British person is angry or not with you. And then he said that the best way to determine whether a British person is angry with you is to look at the foot of their emails. <laughs> he says if you look at the foot of the emails, previous emails to you, and their customary warm regards has vanished... And all you see is the word regards. Then that is a telltale sign that a British person is apoplectic with rage. If it doesn't say kind regards, but just ah, regards. You, you, yeah, you know that they are angry with you. Friends, as we consider Christ's correspondence with us, what I want you to notice as we end tonight is that in every letter Christ signs off in exactly the same way and he signs off with a promise to his people now because of that as we're closing here I've just got two things for you to do the first is to notice the recipients of the promises so here we go this is very quick Bible study. I'll give you some verses to look at. You'll all do this with me, boys and girls. Do it, will you? Look at halfway through verse 7. Halfway through the verse is important. You get it? Who's the promise made to? Then, I'll just give you a couple of these. Look at halfway through verse 11. You see it? If you've got that one, I'll give you one more. Halfway through verse 17. Do you see it? Could go on, could go on. Each time the promise from God is made, Christ says, to the one who conquers, and I pray that you understand the significance of what that means, that each one of these, each one of these eternity-changing promises are made not just to people who profess faith in Christ, each one of these eternity-defining promises are made to those who, by grace, persevere in Christ to the end. You understand that? That these are promises, each one, each letter ending with a promise to those who persevere for the glory of God. Now, that's the first thing that I want you to do. The second thing that I want you to do is notice the specific promise made to these people in Ephesus. So look at verse 7. Our letter, this letter tonight, verse 7. What's the promise? Oh, it's wonderful. This will send you home. This will send you home. Do you see it? Verse 7. Christ says, to the one who conquers, I 
will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We all know. We all know. What's the view there, don't we? Is that tree, isn't it? That book ends the Bible. The tree that appears at the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. It's the tree in Genesis, isn't it? It's the tree in the garden. With the, the tree that symbolizes the presence of God. And what did we read? What did Gabriel read earlier on? It's that tree. In Revelation 22, the tree again symbolizing the very presence of the Almighty God. Friends, doesn't it send you home warm and enthused and praising God? What is for you if you persevere in Christ? It's not just life. And it's not just life everlasting. It's not just life evermore. Do you see and feel the weight and the glory and the beauty of the promise? It is eternal intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is yours by his work of salvation. I honestly think that there. It ought to send us home resolved to renew our love for Christ. But do you know this? If it's not enough to do that, maybe recalling how that life comes about, maybe that will send us home with joy. And you know what that is. Think of it. That access to the tree that bookends either side of the Bible. How do we get access to that tree? Only through the tree that stands at the heart of Scripture. And you and I can only enjoy fellowship with God because this majestic Christ, the one who walks amongst the candlesticks, what has he done for you? He has condescended to hang lifeless few on that cursed tree of Calvary. Friends, let's go and learn from the Ephesians, shall we? We've got to serve. We see here it pleases God. We've got to hold fast our doctrine, but we must not lose that love we had at first, right? What do we do? We recall, do we? We repent and we return to all that fixes our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Oh God, how could it possibly be that we would lose love and zeal and devotion for such a saviour? But yet, such is our sin and our wickedness, the immorality that floods our very being. It is true of us, many of us in here, that we have lost the love that we had at first. Lord God, we pray that you would forgive us for that. But we ask, Lord, that these words would not fall empty into the ground, Lord God. We pray that you would convict us and move us, that we might go even on the way home this evening and remember what we were once like, that we would remember the zeal for Christ Jesus, that we would repent and that we would repeat these means of grace, these times of study and prayer, that we might serve you all the more. Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.